0: The Venezuelan opposition was a, quite a formidable opposition. It was incredibly strong vis-a-vis sort of the, the Colombian opposition, which was relatively weaker in terms both of institutional assets and non-institutional assets.
1: In two weeks, Colombians will head to the polls to elect President Iván Duque's successor. Whether Colombians choose Gustavo Petro or his main rival, Rodolfo Fernández, the incoming administration will re-establish diplomatic ties with Nicolás Maduro in Venezuela. And most importantly, it will bring an end to 20 years of Uribismo, the movement led by former President Álvaro Uribe. How did the opposition to Uribismo defeat a powerful status quo? What are some lessons for opposition movements in Venezuela? To answer these, I'm joined today by Laura Gamboa, assistant professor at the University of Utah's Political Science Department, and the College of Social and Behavioral Science. A native Colombian, Dr. Gamboa is an expert on democracy and institutions in Latin America, and is currently writing a book on opposition strategies in Colombia and Venezuela within contexts of erosion of democracy. The book is called *Resisting Backsliding, Opposition Strategies Against the Erosion of Democracy. Laura, thank you so much for agreeing to do this show. I am very happy and excited that we're having this conversation. And I think this will also be a very timely one. So welcome to the show.
0: No, thank you for inviting me.
1: Laura, I want to start by saying how incredibly hard it is to find a Venezolano or Venezolanista who understands the Colombian political context. Things are just so polarized in Venezuela that Conversations about other Latin American countries, but perhaps specifically in Colombia, they're always so reductionist and filled with what we could call commonplaces, you know, like lugares comunes. So I suspect something similar maybe happens within Colombian civil society whenever Venezuelan politics are a topic of discussion. Uh, but luckily, you have studied both countries and the, let's say, political conflicts inside Venezuela and Colombia. So before moving on to more substantive questions, I'm curious to know, can you tell our audiences what drew you as a Colombian to research Venezuelan democracy?
0: Oh, well, that's a long story. Um, so I went to college to La Universidad Nacional throughout the first term of Álvaro Uribe's uh, government. And it's not like... Widespread repression, but I did have to go through a couple of tear gas situations, and you know, my university doors being knocked over by SWAT and stuff like that, uh, several times. Um, it was, and it was mostly tied with this this very aggressive discourse by Alvaro Uribe, in which the world was split between those who supported him and everybody else, and everybody else were just terrorists that didn't like Colombia. I left to Texas uh, when uh, in 2008 to my master's in Latin American studies. Sort of in the in the sort of in the heat of the second term and 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 Alvaro Uribe trying to get reelected again and like kind of this heated conversation, and I had no hope whatsoever that Alvaro Uribe was not going to be the president for in 2010. Like for me, this was a given. He held majorities in Congress. Uh, the Constitutional Court had approved his first re-election. He had a majority of media outlets and a very strong public support. So for me, this was like a given. And all of a sudden, in 2010, to, 2010, yes, the Constitutional Court comes out and says, no, Mr. President, you know, this is the country that has had an armed conflict this entire history. You know, there are titles of book that are called Colombia in spite of itself. You know, like, and all of a sudden I was so proud. And yet, this neighbor, this is the country that my friends went to. They migrated to Venezuela. My neighbor hadn't been able to hadn't done the same, right? And and for the vast majority of time, like this question kind of lingered in my back. And one day I was listening to this scholar on Bolivia, and he was talking about Evo Morales and how populism and, and his popularity was the whole reason why. Evo Morales and Hugo Chavez had been able to undermine democratic institutions. And I was like, well, but hold on. Alvaro Uribe was just as popular. So so why is that Alvaro Uribe wasn't able to do it? And and that's kind of how I started my whole process. I I drafted a proposal. And when it came time to figure out where to study, it turns out that Colombia and Venezuela are so similar in so many things. Um, Their histories are very. Particular in many ways. And yes, they have a couple of big differences, like, you know, huge oil reserves that Colombia doesn't have and a very long armed conflict that Venezuela didn't have. But in many ways, they just were just so similar that it was, um, it was kind of a perfect case to compare like these two presidents, one who successfully eroded democracy and the other one who didn't.
1: Interesting. So I heard you say you did your master's in Latin American studies just as I did, so the interest in our next-door neighbor's politics makes perfect sense to me. And actually, a pretty good segue for my next question. Uh, as you very well mentioned, uh, despite their geographic and cultural similarities, um, I, my view is that Venezuela and Colombia are actually, uh, and our politics are, I think, deeply different. Uh, but both countries were marked for pretty much the entirety of the 21st century so far by the leaderships of um Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and Álvaro Uribe in Colombia. So these are two charismatic leaders who concentrated power and attempted to chip away at their respective institutions. So there has been a lot of literature and debate over the state of Venezuelan democracy during the Chavez years, whether it's a representative democracy, a participatory democracy, or perhaps a more of a populist democracy. But how would you describe Colombian democracy during the Uribe years? Can you, for instance, give some examples as to what ways did Uribe try to chip away at democracy? You just mentioned, uh, for example, the fact that he tried to reelect himself, which was originally not permitted by the Constitution. Can you give us some other examples?
0: Sure. So um, I, I define presidents uh, who are trying to undermine democracy as presidents that ho- that show very little regard for democratic institutions. Usually these presidents have very strong agendas, right? And so in the case of Alvaro Uribe, this agenda was an agenda about armed conflict, right? Like so Alvaro Uribe saw the armed conflict as sort of the a, a, a drug led terrorist menace and, and his, his whole agenda was tied to the armed conflict. I would argue still is. Um, to a certain extent, a lot of the reforms that Alvaro Uribe tried to do revolve this. Alvaro Uribe did not try to uh, to do a constitutional assembly like Hugo Chavez, but he did try to reform the constitution the day he came into power. Just like Chavez swore into this defunct constitution, like he did when he became president, Alvaro Uribe came to power, and the day he was sworn to, into office, he introduced a referendum that um, sought to um, impeach Congress, make it smaller, and re-elect it, obviously, in Uribe's in, in, in coattails, right? Like so, and so, and so the, the idea was that he was gonna elect a pliant Congress that would just kind of be easier to deal with. And this all was wrapped up in this rhetoric of uh, politiquería and corruption, right? Like in singling out Congress and politicians, broadly speaking, as corrupt, people who were who, who just lazy and wouldn't do things. Uh, this referendum um, was modified throughout his process and eventually in general just failed. Afterwards, Alberti introduced another reform. This is a, another kind of big reform in which he was trying to increase his powers of decree in order to deal with what he saw as a terrorist menace, right? And so the idea was to grant the armed forces kind of judiciary powers in cases that would be deemed as cases of terrorism broadly described, right? Now, presidents in Colombia and elsewhere have the ability to have uh, powers of decree, but in Colombia, these powers of decree are usually limited by time. They're also limited by other institutions. And what Alvaro Uribe wanted was to circumvent these limitations and make a lot of these powers of decree permanent. These eventually also uh, failed. Besides that, I don't, I don't go into details, but uh, Álvaro Uribe used the state apparatus to infiltrate the communications of journalists, judges, uh, opposition members. He also used the state apparatus to uh, filter information into uh, paramilitary groups against uh, sort of left-wing activists and and, and people he suspected or his administration suspected expected to be close to the FARC in any way, shape or form. Um, he used a rhetoric that systematically targeted anybody who opposed him. Every, anybody who opposed him was just a FARC friend to put it that way. He also tried to circumvent both the constitutional and the Supreme Court at different points in time. And he tried to co-opt several um, state institutions, including media, sort of the the state institution that controls uh, media outlets. And um, he tried, though, this one didn't go very far, really, to put his people inside the Treasury Department. Um, And so because a lot of these failed, we just don't know about them. But if you go through congressional records and you go through newspapers, you'll see that he really tried to undermine democracy. Um, now, I don't know, three years after I finished investigation for my book, we have come to know something that was expected. We just didn't have enough evidence that his democratic security policies created incentives for members of the armed forces to kill roughly 6,000 kids. and and dress them as guerrilla members and report them as casualties, right? And and the administration knew this was happening and and there were a lot of people and and community leaders and activists saying, hey, this is happening. They're killing our kids. And the administration just accused these people of being terrorists themselves, right? So I think in general, like Hugo Chavez, Alvaro Uribe had a very strong radical agenda on security matters and he was willing to go and undermine whatever democratic institution got in his way to to push that agenda through.
1: Let's talk about opposition strategies in both countries. So I read your work and from what I gather, your main thesis is that the opposition to former president Uribe in Colombia was successful in stopping his attempts to erode democracy while the Venezuelan opposition failed to stop Chávez because it resorted to maximalist tactics against him, uh, for example, electoral boycotts, military coups, sanctions, etc. Before you explain your theory, is it fair to say that both oppositions had the same degree of institutional leverage against their respective executives?
0: So I think to a certain extent, yes. Um, so if we look back into the opposition to Hugo Chavez after the 1999 constitution, so, so you know, if you look at past 2000, the mega lecciones. then you'll see that the opposition there had roughly a little over, so it started 2000 in the first part of 2001 with like, I I don't remember the numbers exactly right now, but I want to say like 30% of, of the National Assembly, right? But then of course you have uh, the, the ley habilitante, the national decree, this enabling law that allowed Chavez to produce the 49 decrees that Outraged several people, including his followers, in particular the Miquilena faction of of the Chavista coalition. Once the Miquilena faction separated from Chávez, the opposition got close to get half of the of the seats in Congress. Right, so you have a, a, an opposition that before the coup of two thousand two had half the the seats in Congress, had support inside the armed forces, had control over uh, PDVSA, had control over media outlets. And and this is a a challenging one, because to a certain extent, people claim, or or scholars and and other people claim, well, they didn't have control of the courts. But again, once the Mikilena faction splits, the opposition was able to gain several judges that had been put in place by Mikilena during the sort of retransformation and restructuring of institutions after the, the 1999 constitution. And so you have on the one side that. In Colombia, what you have is an opposition that has roughly, give or take, 30% of Congress, a little bit less sometimes, it depends on the chamber. You have an opposition that has zero, like zero support or control or uh, influence over the armed forces, very little control over any kind of meaningful production asset, very little influence over media outlets, which were mostly Urivista, and it, didn't have the ability to—I mean, it had the ability to mobilize citizens to the streets, but not to the extent that the Venezuelans had. Sort of the protests that or the demonstrations of 2002 are were huge, huge compared to what sort of the 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 activists of human rights and so on and so forth could do in Colombia.
1: Can you give some examples of the tactics used by the Colombian opposition to stop Alvaro Uribe's power grabs, like what they do? Because you're saying they had far less institutional and non-institutional leverages, and yet they were successful. So what went right? What did they do?
0: So the Colombian opposition, what, my argument is um, that the, the Colombian opposition played the long game, to put it that way. These... This starts by the premise, and I think this is not a wrong premise, not at least uh, in the case of Chavez and Uribe and several other presidents that are similar to these kind of uh, presidents with hegemonic aspirations, as I call them. Um, What I argue is that these presidents need to keep a democratic facade. They need to keep this, this mask that they're democratic. And so they're not gonna commit overtly undemocratic. They're not gonna attack democracy openly. Even if they want to. And so the only reason they will do so is if they have what I call a legitimate reason, or as I would say in Spanish, si les dan papaya. So, so so to a certain extent, what I think is the Colombian opposition played the long term. And so what they did is that they use what I called institutional strategies with moderate goals. That is, they use the seats that they had in in Congress in order to um, make sure to delay. Uh, congressional, these these reforms, they delayed the referendum, they delayed the re-election reform, they delayed the anti-terrorist statute, the one that they were trying to change the decrees They also leveraged Congress to produce technicalities that would allow the constitutional court to rule against these, these bills. Now, there is an argument to be made about how the constitutional court could have used other arguments, but any other argument would have been a little bit flimsy. And so what they did is that they gave the constitutional court strong ground to rule against a very popular president. The other thing that they use is they use what I call moderate extra institutional strategies, right? So they use the streets, but they use them not to oust the president, but rather to do two important things. One is to to organize, um, to kind of leverage institutional mechanisms. So for example, for the referendum, uh, the referendum passed in Congress and, and eventually it was put up for a vote. So the opposition, what they did is that they leveraged boycotts to stop the referendum, not to stop the UN, not to hinder his term, to stop the referendum itself. And they did so successfully, but they also used the streets to show their support to democratic institutions. So there's this, this beautiful picture um, and and then this beautiful, beautiful story about how uh, Ciudadanos por la Democracia, which was an organization that formed around um, the, the opposition to, to to Uribe, but mostly actually just support for democracy, the night before the constitutional court or the sort of the nights or the weeks before the constitutional court was supposed to render a, set, a, a ruling on the second referendum, the opposition decided, this, this group decided to put candles in front of the constitutional court to illuminate the court to make the right decision. So they were not pressuring anybody to resign. They were not saying that Uribe was the worst thing ever. They were just showing the constitutional court that they had support from the citizenry, that they were behind them. That if they were willing and able to rule against what would have been an incredibly damaging authoritarian reform, the citizens would support them. On the contrary, the, the Venezuelan opposition used what I called extra institutional strategies with radical goals. So starting in, in 2000, late 2001, beginnings of 2002, the Venezuelan opposition launched a very, very strong campaign trying to end Chavez term. Like that was the goal. Right. So the first sort of big step on this was the coup of 2002 and there's a lot of conversations about whether the coup was caused or was not caused by the opposition and so on and so forth. But in general, what they did is they organized a a street protest that sought to end Chavez's term before the end of his constitutional term. And I mean, sort of in in immediate terms, they kind of succeeded, right? Like Chavez was removed from office, but it was very short lived. And it was very short lived because immediately after Chavez was removed of office, instead of doing things like, allowing other Chavistas to follow the proper channels of replacing the president. They, they just chase him back. They canceled the 99, the 1999 constitution. And you have like this picture of Pedro Carmona swearing himself into office, right? And so no position can claim to be democratic with this kind of behavior. And and very quickly, the, the factions of the military that were waiting to see what happened brought Chávez back. Then after the coup, you have a period in which the OAS and the Carter Center are trying to negotiate between creating a negotiation between the president and the opposition, but both camps feel that if they keep things polarized, they're gonna win, right? So the opposition refuses to engage with the table, with the negotiation in earnest, and Chavez does the same, right? And so part of the problem is that when, when the when the coup failed, and I forgot to say this, uh, Chavez has a perfect reason and a perfect legitimate excuse to purge the armed forces and, and chase and persecute people like Pedro Carmona, but also people who may or may not have had anything with the coup. Fast forward to late 2002, you have the negotiation table in which the opposition is very strong in the streets. They could have leveraged that pressure To negotiate a better deal at the table, but they refused to do so. Instead, they put all their money behind ousting Chavez before the end of his his constitutional term by using the the, strike, general strike, to to, to create such a situation that Chavez would be forced to resign. And once again, they were outgained, except that by the time The strike ended by the time the the opposition had to realize that the strike was done. The the government now had the excuse to replace around 60,000 people inside, 60 percent of PDVSA employees. Not only that, but it had wasted key resources that could have used the negotiation table. And so now the opposition was left with nothing to leverage. And without nothing to leverage, they had to agree to a recall referendum, which was what the government had offered all along. So they were in square one. The referendum comes and goes, and I'm happy to talk about the referendum a little bit, but um, the third sort of major misstep here was the the congressional boycott. And once again, the boycott is done with the idea that if enough people fail to participate in the elections, you're gonna delegitimize the president and the president is gonna be forced to resign. And guess what? He wasn't. Instead, what happens was that the the opposition gave Chavez a almost 100% Chavista Congress. Like, so the opposition starts with a strong presence in the strong influence over the armed forces, control over PDVSA. By 2002, they had half of the seats in Congress. And then by 2006, they have lost all three of these.
1: Laura, you just mentioned this Colombian organization. Correct me if I'm butchering their name, but I think you said they were called... Colombianos or Ciudadanos por la Democracia. And I can't help but think that um, about what I see as one of the key limits within the Venezuelan opposition, and that is their linkages or lack thereof to civil society and larger social movements. They have traditionally been linked to business sectors, the church, and some middle class student movements. Grassroots social movements, whether it's environmental movements or indigenous movements, labor sectors, or even, let's say, feminist movements, they've been largely absent from their discourse, and in my view, this has been a severe limit in their aspirations for power. Can you talk about this? Because we see how Gustavo Petro might become Colombia's next president, and it's been interesting to see how his campaign has more or less coalesced around larger social movements that are generally absent from the traditional opposition in Venezuela. Can you talk about their trajectories towards power? I mean, there are hardly that many strong opposition figures to Uribismo other than Petro. So... Tell us, what do you see as missing from the Venezuelan opposition vis-a-vis their relation to civil society and social movements?
0: So I say this from the comfort of my house. So I am not the one at the trenches fighting for democracy. So I say this with the utmost respect for students and people in the streets. Like um, with that caveat, I think that uh, the Venezuelan opposition has had traditionally a couple of problems. The first one is, I think the Venezuelan opposition was um, or or Chavez came about in a world in which not only political parties, but politicians themselves were highly, highly um, criticized. Nobody believed in them. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. Yes, politicians, some of them are corrupt, some of them are bad, some of them, but the others are good and the others are not corrupt. Like there is a, a combination of people here, right? And, and I think politicians also know about politics and politics is about negotiation. It's about accepting the fact that people who think different from you, that have different preferences from you, that come from a different background from you have a right to exist, participate and be part of the conversation. And I think when you only have social movements, and I say this uh, both for movements with, with causes that I agree with and movements with causes that I disagree with, right? Movements um, are more uh, radical in their demands, usually. right? Like So, so their job is actually to push politicians to, to get some of what they want. But they start off very radical because it's not the job of, of, of social movements and people in the streets to negotiate. That's the job of politicians. I think, however, in Venezuela, what we observe is it's actually very interesting because I agree with you. Right now, the Venezuelan opposition, the, the, there's a huge disconnect between uh, sort of the, the heads or the visible opposition to put it that way and sort of the people on the ground. There's very little connection. But if you, if you, if you rewind back to, to 2020, it was the opposite, right? Like, so, so you have very little politicians and the politicians that were there were like shunned out and you have this civil society, yes, led by the church, business organizations, but also um, uh, unions. Unions were fairly strong in the opposition to Hugo Chavez at the beginning of, of Chavez's government, right? This is a problem. This is a twofold problem, maybe a threefold. So problem number one, there is a misunderstanding of the Chavez phenomenon. Every time you look back to the opposition, Uh, especially sort of the the, the heads, the visible heads of the opposition, in particularly people that have been around like for a while, like Maria Corina Machado or or kind of like these these kind of more radical opposition members, is, is a lack of acknowledgement that Hugo Chavez was more than a tyrant, that Hugo Chavez was able to read the situation in which a vast group of Venezuelans were. And yes, he definitely eroded democracy in venezuela he definitely i mean he left venezuela or venezuela is worse off today than it was when he came in absolutely i have no question about that but at the same time he gave voice and a space to a group of people that have been traditionally ignored or who felt that have been traditionally ignored and that needs to be recognized these people these desires like what they want what they need and how they function needs to be recognized. And that goes through recognizing that Chavismo is not going anywhere and that it deserves a seat at the table, period. This is also tied up, I think to a certain extent with the dynamics inside the opposition. So I think part of the problem today, less so then, but I think today part of the problem is that the people leading the opposition are also people who wanna win office in 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 a democratic Venezuela. Right. And and to win office in a democratic Venezuela, they feel and they're probably right to feel that, that they need to cater to sort of the broad base of anti-Chavistas. And to do that, they cannot give in. And giving in means negotiating. And as a Colombian, I know this very well. There's no way in which you can end conflict or a dictatorship without giving, quote unquote, the dictators or in my case, the guerrilla something the government is not going to give you power just because the guerrilla was not going to give up arms just because like you need to give them something right and but those negotiations are politically costly very politically costly and we saw that in Colombia where santos won a Nobel peace prize for the for the peace process and yet his main opponent won the presidential election right and so if you are part of the opposition and you want to stay in politics and you want to win politics in a post maduro venezuela clearly it's not in your best interest to advocate for this kind of negotiation that could potentially unlock a path towards some kind of transition or change.
1: That's very interesting. So you're talking about exit strategies to end conflicts, which leads us to transitional justice. So there's been a lot of chatter, even as far back as the last presidential elections in Colombia, around how the end to the armed conflict with the FARC allowed for someone like Gustavo Petro, a former M-19 guerrilla himself, to become electorally competitive and for Colombians to pay attention to issues of corruption and inequality. And, you know, I think in a way this has allowed for reckoning and maturing of Colombian society in a post-conflict country. I think this is a very good thing. And as you've said, the Colombian opposition, they took the long route. It's been 20 years of Uribismo calling the shots, polarizing, the whole no estarían sembrando cafe rhetoric around the false positives, deepening the drug war, and all that that means for marginalized communities, you know, massive large scale injustices. That might finally come to an end in the coming weeks. Would you agree that in order for the Venezuelan opposition to overcome Chavismo, not as a social force per se, but perhaps the political and military elite within it, is it fair to say that they will have to go through some sort of reckoning or transitional justice in the same way that Petro and the M-19 did so in 1991 and how the FARC have also been able to do years later?
0: Absolutely, without a doubt. I, I, I have not seen the first peace process unless it is kind of an invasion or like, you know, street takeover of some kind uh, in which... The government just gives up government in exchange for nothing. Now, because the sort of international law system has changed a lot in the past 20 years, those transitional mechanisms need to be thought through, right? So an amnesty, like the one that Gustavo Petro enjoyed or dictators like Rafael Videla enjoyed is no longer possible. It's just, it's, it's not credible, right? At any point in time, victims can go in and, and sue the government and the government is gonna have to start trials. And we have seen trials against dictators, right-wing dictators across Latin America. So I don't think it's, 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 it's feasible. Something like that is unfeasible. But I do think that there are mechanisms. We have used them in Colombia, in South Africa, in, in El Salvador, in um, Guatemala. We have used them across the globe to figure out ways to, to decrease the costs of a stepping down, right? Like, so I don't, and, 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 and in general, what we know about transitional justice, uh, and this is the work of um, uh, three colleagues of mine, Guillermo Trejo, Juan Alvaracín, and Lucia Tiscornia, who work on transitional justice a lot. Part of what we have learned is that countries that go through some kind of transitional justice are in general, better performers. They have stronger democracies, they have less crime, and we have like sort of Mexico is a, a great example for this. So in Mexico, the transition to democracy was just an election. It just happened. And, and there was never a truth commission. There was never any kind of reparation, recognition, nothing. Crimes committed in the ni- 1960s, 1970s, 1980s are still unacknowledged, noticed. Like we don't know who committed them. And so what, what this creates is like this recycles, uh, this creates cycles of, of impunity. So countries that are able to sit down and negotiate some kind of transitional justice mechanism are, are just incredibly, are, are just better performers. They, they are better able to, to overcome and to build newer societies, overcome dictatorship. I, I also think that these kind of deals are just so incredibly freaking unpopular. Like it is, it is really hard to be the person who negotiates this kind of, of, of transition and get elected to office because nobody wants to pardon these people and there are good reasons. When all comes to count, like, you know, like the the, the 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 government in Venezuela or the FARC in Colombia or the dictatorship in El Salvador committed atrocious crimes. Like these, these are unprecedented crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against people. They kill thousands of people. They use, you know, they kidnapped and tortured and all of these things, right? And so... Nobody wants to vote for the guy that allowed these people to not go to prison. And yet we need that deal, right? And so one of the things that I've always thought about the Venezuelan opposition is that what they need is somebody willing to not run for office, (laughs) to not have like political aspirations, at least not immediate ones, because those aren't gonna go down the toilet.
1: Those are all just fantastic points, Laura, and I have a couple of thoughts. First, you're absolutely right. I think more than a political leader, what Venezuela needs is a social leader, right? Or at least a socially oriented leader able to genuinely channel the demands of movements. And in my view, that is 100% lacking. We keep talking about the same politicians who have been around for the last 20 years. Enrique Capriles, Maria Corina Machado, Leopoldo López, Antonio Ledesma. Politicians who, by the way, are for the most part male, white mestizos, mostly from Caracas. And that's a huge problem. This just makes it so much harder to create the necessary linkages with the rest of the country. And the other point that you made and I wanted to highlight was this idea of how societies who are not able to overcome the root causes of conflicts, they tend to be worse off. Spain, for instance, is today one of the poorest countries in Western Europe, and their governing elites basically decided not to talk about what happened during the Franco dictatorship Uh, on on a similar vein. And I'm not an expert in Nicaragua, but my understanding is that something similar happened after the civil war, when Daniel Ortega and his amnistas gave up power to Violeta Chamorro, no transitional justice, just presidential elections. And they've reached full circle. And Ortega is back in power and stronger than ever. And, and and I know that's a lot to unpack and you've explained it beautifully, but I really wanted to end this conversation kind of getting your impressions for the future of your country. Colombia will head to the polls in a few weeks to decide to what degree Colombians are willing to overcome Uribismo as a political force. And it's interesting because both Gustavo Petro and his rival, Rodolfo Fernández, and we could even include Sergio Fajardo, um, the fourth place candidate during the first round, they've all pledged to reestablish diplomatic relations with Nicolás Maduro. This will automatically translate to a weakening of the strategy around the supposedly interim government of Juan Guaidó. What do you think about this? Do you have any concluding thoughts about the future?
0: So I think the, 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 the answer to that is different depending on whether Petro wins the election or Rodolfo Fernández wins the election. For Rodolfo Fernández, this is a very practical decision. There's a bunch of Colombians in Venezuela that need consular services. So we need to reopen consulates and we need to allow for commerce because that's just easier, better and pragmatically correct. Um, I also think this is, and this is true for both Petro and Rodolfo Hernandez, Venezuela. And I think this is part of the problem. This is probably another whole interview, but uh, part of the problem here is I think Venezuela has become the favorite uh, domestic punching ball for a lot of governments, right? And so it's a fantastic. It was a fantastic punching ball for for Donald Trump because he was able to mobilize a lot of Latinos in places like Florida, which are key for elections with this very rhetoric and inviting Juan Guaidó to the State of the Union, but without really thinking through what needs to be done to allow for Venezuela to transition to democracy, right? Um, and it was fantastic for 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 Ivan Duque for the same reason, like Ivan Duque is probably one of the worst presidents we have had in many, many years. And I'm gonna say this, and I wrote a book in which I say that Alvaro Uribe was, had authoritarian tendencies, so. Um, and so, Ivan Duque's popularity was always very low. He, he wasn't able to push forward anything. And I think the biggest problem we have is that countries need to think about Venezuela as, as Venezuela, not through the domestic lens of how it works for me as a president. So, I think in general, both for Hernandez and for Petro, Venezuela is, is less convenient domestically, it's going to be less relevant for domestic politics, and hopefully, hopefully. That means the way you think about Maduro's and Maduro's regime is thought more through an international lens. Now, I would imagine, uh, given sort of the kind of movement that Gustavo Petro has and then sort of the people he has behind, that he has a more coherent, that Gustavo Petro is more likely to have a coherent international uh, foreign policy than Hernández. Hernández, don't ask me. Like, I, I don't know. I know that he has promised to reopen consulates and re- engage in relationships, but that's about it. And and I don't think that um, in general, so I any any time they tell me, well, we're gonna pressure Maduro to exit. I was like, you need causal mechanisms, people. So what is the mechanism by which this pressure is gonna affect whether Maduro decides to stay or leave? You can pressure as much as you want. Nothing is gonna happen unless you're ready to, I don't know, take like Miraflores by force or something.
1: Right. And there's already been failed experiences at that, even as recent as a couple of years ago, Operation Gideon and this whole Bay of Piglets invasion from Colombia, where these mercenaries were supposedly going to capture Maduro. And apparently both the Duque and Trump administrations uh, knew about these and everything just went horribly wrong, and I I really can't think of anything that could have damaged more Guaidó's reputation as a supposedly interim president, and, well, let's say, hopefully, eh, a lo pasado pisado, because we really could make an entire episode about that debacle, but we'll move on. Um, But, Laura, what a fascinating conversation. Your upcoming book is called Resisting Backsliding, Opposition Strategies Against the Erosion of Democracy. I'm dying to read it. So tell us, when does it come out?
0: It's coming out in September. It is currently in production with Cambridge University Press. Um, I will probably advertise it in Twitter. It is going to be hardcover and paperback. So that's good news. I think there's also an e-version. So if you're not sort of in the places where, you know, sending things through mail are easy, then you can always, if you can, get the e-version. there's also, if you're listening to these and we, you would rather read something in Spanish, I've translated my main um, article, the, the the one in comparative politics. I've translated it and it's going to be published by Desafios, the, the, the political science journal from the Universidad Rosario in Bogotá. And that is open access, which I'll also advertise in my Twitter as soon as it's out.
1: Fantastic. Well, there you have it. An upcoming book and Spanish translated version of your article on comparative politics which I also highly recommend everyone reads if you want to learn more about uh, opposition strategies in both Venezuela and Colombia this is a very good comparative analysis perhaps the only comparative analysis on these two that I'm familiar with so far uh, and I've been speaking with Laura Gamboa assistant professor at the University of Utah's political science department and the college of social and behavioral sciences so laura big thank you for participating on the show and i really want to wish you and all colombians the best of luck in the coming weeks and years and i'm really looking forward to reading your book
0: absolutely thank you so much for inviting
1: me